Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here, as always, with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. Our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. This week, we have a nice grab bag of things to talk about from television to film to films that are not coming out for many months. Uh, And then in the back half of the episode, we're going to have an interview that uh, VF's Laura Bradley did with Marissa Tomei, who played Edith Bunker in the live Norman Lear All in the Family revival that happened a couple weeks ago and really kind of, uh, you know, literally channeled the spirit of Gene Stapleton, as she'll talk about in the interview. But first of all, I want to talk about something that popped up as somewhat of a surprise to me. I didn't quite realize it was going up. Uh, This morning, as we record this, uh, we debuted a bunch of photos from Greta Gerwig's Little Women adaptation, uh, which is coming out. I don't know that it has a specific date, but it'll be out later this year. Uh, it's reuniting her with Saoirse Ronan and Timothy Chalamet. It's got um, Emma Watson in a role. It's it's incredibly exciting. I've been excited about it even before these photos showed up. Uh, did you guys all swoon as hard for these Little Women photos as I did? Yeah, they're gorgeous photos. Um, and, um, you know, the costuming looks not overly lavish, but very tailored and beautiful. And... Um, you know, it's it's crazy to see everyone assembled together in there. I mean, there were some set, uh, like I think like kind of paparazzi sh- photos from the set, but like, you know, this is like the way it's going to look on screen, and it just yeah. I mean, it's 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 exciting. And judging from Twitter's reaction, people are like ready to go for this movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not super surprising, I guess. There are some really nice baskets. <laughs> yeah, beautiful basket. <laughs> <laughs> The, uh, the photo that I tweeted was the photo of uh, Saoirse and uh, Timothy looking at each other. And she, like, she's wearing this kind of like jacket and tie, like this menswear thing. And she's playing Joe, who's like you know, one of literature's fam- most famous tomboys. And there's a lot of time in the article that uh, Sonia Soraya wrote about kind of giving over to the relationship between the two of them and how they kind of like meet in the middle. And Joe, like, you know, in some ways wants to be a boy and they have this uh, friendship. Uh, and I'm just like, I haven't read Little Women in a long time. And it made me so excited probably to read the book again and then revisit it from you know an adult perspective. One of my favorite things about this article um, that Sonia and the VF team put together is there are so many references to 
the book. Like there's the, the, the beautiful shot of Saoirse on, on the rug with like her hair all sort of spilled out. Joe's famously beautiful hair sort of spilled out all around her. Um, and, and the caption is something like, one of the very first lines of the book mentions Joe's fondness for lying on the floor. I was like, this is the content I'm here for. <laughs> all of the book references. I'm so excited. This so. one's for the fans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for the book nerds, for the Alcott heads. Eliza, Eliza Scanlon, who we talked to for the Still Watching podcast when we were covering Sharp Objects, she was just such an electric presence um, in that show last year. And I've been really excited to see her do Beth, who is like a much different, wildly different character. But I just think she's such a talent that I'm really ready to see her pop. And then uh, Florence, is it Pew? Is that how you pronounce her last name? Mm -hmm. I think so. Um, As Amy, like she's incredible in everything she's done. And so it's just, it's an amazing cast. And uh, like additionally, all of that beautiful costuming, amazing cast. And then every shot where you see Greta in, Greta Gerwig in frame, like doing director hands or whatever. (laughs) I get really excited about With Meryl Streep. Yeah, exactly. uh, playing their aunt. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's cool to see. Obviously, you know, Greta Gerwig reunite with Timothy Chalamet and Saoirse Ronan after Lady Bird. And then I love this quote because I think of Greta Gerwig eternally as like Francis Ha, as a very like contemporary, sort of borderline punk rock, like arty person. And so it's interesting to see her do like a period piece. But I love this quote she gave Sonia. Where they were just people. They were not in a period piece. They were just living. They were the most modern people who had ever existed up to that point. And that suggests, yeah. like, a, a hopefully a fresh, you know, modern look at this whole thing. Or maybe not yeah. modern, but, like, just giving it the life of time as it's lived, not well, looking back in some nostalgic way. No, exactly, Mike. And I think that that's, that's really tricky because sometimes people kind of overly period the period piece. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think about something like uh, years ago, Mike Lee's film, Mr. Turner, or just what I saw at Cannes, that portrait of a lady on fire, where you watch these movies, and it sounds like a silly thing to say because I certainly wasn't alive then, but you're like, I bet this is actually what it was like. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. And, like, a quote like that makes me uh, hope and, and think that, like, Gerwig could be on the right track in terms of getting a very lived in textured kind of thing not to say that the 1994 film the Gillian Armstrong film isn't but like you know that was 25 years ago it's a new now you know new generation can experience the the story on film so yeah it has me excited and those costumes which again aren't overly ornate also I think lend us that that to that sense of uh, of authenticity and I thought the pink converse all stars was an interesting touch to, to just thread in there too. <laughs> yeah. all those phoenix songs yeah. <laughs> yeah. well I think it's funny because it's it's good that you mentioned the Gillian Armstrong version because for people our age who weren't complete weirdos and had already seen like the Elizabeth Taylor or Catherine Hepburn versions of Little Women uh, and so Gillian Armstrong's felt like a third remake by the time it came out in 94 but like that film the 94 film is such an iconic film for so many people the fact that there's so much excitement around Greta doing this uh, is really incredible as opposed to resistance of like how dare she this is my this is my definitive version this 1994 version and and like that reception to this project, I think, speaks to how much enormous goodwill she has built up after Lady Bird and just the impeccable way that that she's cast this film. Yeah, it's fun. We talk about trailers occasionally on uh, this show, but very rarely do we talk about photos in this much uh, detail, which I think maybe says something both to how stunning these photos are and how excited we are as a group for Little Women. So And and starved much. for Oscar stuff. I mean, we have you know the, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the reveal of these photos, and we also had a first, per, uh, I think it's a production still from West Side Story, the Steven Spielberg movie, which right, just right. kind of started filming uh, in New York. And, you know, I'm not 
going to base any real opinion off of one photo from uh, from West Side Story, but you know that has a much more like cinematic Janusz Kaminski kind of look to it, which you know maybe says that the film won't have the kind of gritty authenticity that uh, one might hope for a sort of more modern West Side Story. But still, I'm excited. It's fun to sort of start to see these first trickles of what we're, we're going to be talking about a lot of this podcast in about five months. Do you think? It's possible to improve on the first West Side Story. Doesn't it seem like an act of extreme hubris to just be like, let me remake this again? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a little nuts, especially when you have something like Jerome Robbins' choreography being so essential to. They are using the choreography, aren't they? Yeah, if they are, then great. Because I know there was a a Broadway revival of West Side Story a few years ago that didn't use the choreography. I mean, you kind of sort of partly used it. And it was like, eh, not quite the same. (laughs) You know. the uh, the the tweet that I saw, sorry to like reference tweets on a podcast, but the tweet that I saw that really summed up uh, my take on that first West Side Story photo is uh, at that Sasha James wrote West Side Story 1961 versus Beige the Musical and just compared two photos and it's just a promo photo, but the new production it does just look so muted and washed out intentionally so probably, but compare it to the pop of color that you get in in West Side Story the pops of color is just uh, you know it is it is huge choice a huge swing and I guess the thing that the 2020 version has uh, in its favor is a casting younger and b casting actually like latino actors and actresses in in these roles you yeah know? and also um, people who are going to sing unlike natalie wood did uh right. she you know she didn't sing in the original um i think that casting timothy chalamet as officer krupke that feels <laughs> transgressive but they aged him up he has so yeah. much age makeup it's like the reverse of, they just like flipped the switch on the martin scorsese irishman machine they were like <laughs> older <laughs> North Noting, I think, was this West Side Story won't be out till next year. Oh, yeah, it's set for December 20, December 18th, 2020. So this December we get Cats the Musical. Next December we get West Side Story the Musical. Uh, can we handle it? In this post-Greatest Showman world, I guess December is the time for musicals? Yeah, well, seeming like. Why not? Okay, let's stay in movies for a minute before we uh, jump into one recent TV obsession. Uh, Richard, last night you were at what seemed like not just any press screening for Midsommar. Like, is this one that you got, like, sent a hand-stitched invitation to go to, and then all of New York Press was there kind of expecting to have the the lives scared out of them? Yeah, Ari Oster pulled up to the um, Conde offices in a stagecoach and had a very (laughs) (laughs) small No, uh, they did send a physical invite that was kind of a pop-up that was cool that I never received, so I just had to respond to it email boring but um yeah so they did a screening in brooklyn at the alamo draft house uh which is always nice to have a brooklyn screening they did a screening simultaneously in los angeles in austin and i believe one other city and they really were ramping up excitement for this and i was like surely there will be an embargo like we're not going to be able to tweet about it or, or file reviews and i emailed and they said no there's no embargo like say whatever you want after the movie's over and i talked to nicolette from uh eisenberg from a24 and she was like we never have embargoes which I was like, oh, I've never noticed that, that the A24, but guess, unless it's like at a Cannes Film Festival type thing, never has embargo. So they really wanted to create a sense of excitement more than there already was based on the fact that this is the guy who made Hereditary and the trailers are so effective and the poster art is so effective. There were a couple of technical difficulties, which meant our screening had to start late, which was, um, I think, actually kind of only added to the excitement. The cast was there. Ari Aster was there. They did a, a Q&A afterward. So the movie had a lot kind of going for it as it's, you know, the credits rolled, let's say. Um, And then I think it delivered. I mean, it's a really disturbing, um, not quite jump scary movie, but just creepy that also deals a lot with grief, similar to Hereditary. So I, I I filed a kind of gushy review last night. I don't know what it's like 
popular box office kind of potential is, it's pretty alienating. You remember that like Hereditary, though it did well at the box office, had like a terrible cinema score, like audience exit polling, I think was like a D. I could see this going a similar route, like big opening weekend, then word of mouth kind of peters off. But I think for those in the sort of with a propensity for sort of RD horror in the prestige horror world we live in now, this one ought to deliver. A24 has really been making uh, prestige horror. Like, obviously, that term exists in one place. Jordan Peele's been, like, a big part of it. But I'm thinking of Hereditary and The Witch and, you know, movies that are, like, truly weird, arty horror movies. Like, Hereditary made $44 million, uh domestic box office. The Witch made twenty five, which is a lot yeah. for a movie whose tagline is, like, is. what's yeah. thou like to live deliciously in a donkey yeah. goat? <laughs> like, it's impressive how much they've gotten people to embrace really weird stuff. Yeah, and I would say this, you know, about uh, about um, Midsommar and also the filmmaker behind The Witch, Robert Eggers. His second film was The Lighthouse, which we talked about he- on the podcast uh, out of Cannes, which is super weird, you know, narrow aspect ratio shot in black and white with old timey dialogue. And this is Ari Aster kind of doubling down on the themes of hereditary and going more esoteric and weirder. And I really like that trajectory, that these are not guys who, quote unquote, sold out and went for the big budget thing. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, if you want to make money and have a bigger impact in terms of, um, you know, reach, that's fine if you want to do a big budget movie after an independent success. But I like that they're really that um, Ari Aster in Midsommar seems really committed to his artistry. And I I hate to be hyperbolic. Well, no, I don't. I love to be. But um, (laughs) uh you watching the film last night and kind of thinking about it afterward, I was like, this is this is going to be a major filmmaker. Like he he is like, you know, has the artistry of Paul Thomas Anderson or Kubrick. I mean, he really has such a command of kind of cinematic language. I mean, you know, not everything in the movie works. It's really long. I think it drags a bit. But like it's a big sophomore f- swing, you know, in, in the spirit of so many sophomore features. And I just think it's really exciting that he is clearly somebody who has a very clear intent with the kind of films he wants to make, and I hope he sticks to it. Um, I just want to speak up for San Francisco really quickly and say I also got a hand-engraved uh, invitation, whatever, to this film that they were doing at the Alamo here in San Francisco with, I guess, like a live screen, uh, live simulcast thing, Q&A. I chose instead to see an arty film about a cowboy and a shepherdess, uh, sort of a, uh, an independent love story uh, <laughs> that we'll talk about later. But uh, but no, the real reason, I, didn't, I mean, I those two screenings were at the same time in San Francisco, which uh, Toy Story 4 and... And Midsummer, but the real reason I didn't see Midsummer is I was too scared to. So uh, same thing happened with Hereditary. Um, uh, Hereditary, I had to watch at home with all the light, like in the middle of the day with all the windows, like all the blinds open, um, which is exactly, I'm sure, how Ari Aster wanted me to watch his film. But I was too scared to watch it any other way. But do you think, like, just much the way that there was um, rumblings of uh, awards campaign behind um Tony Collette, uh, Richard, do you see anything for like Florence Pugh or Jack Rayner or anyone else who's who's in this film coming out of it? Mm, I don't think it's quite that movie. Um, mm-hmm. I think you I think its best hope would be in, you know, this below the line. I think the cinematography is exquisite. The score is amazing. I think that for Florence Pugh, who is the star of the film, and we just mentioned that she's in Little Women, this is going to be a huge year for her between, you know, this really interesting genre piece and then a much more accessible, you know, 
traditional fall season Oscar movie. Um, she's an actress who's been simmering for a while now. People who saw Lady Macbeth or saw um, the AMC miniseries The Little Drummer Girl. And I'm just excited for her to now take that next step in her career because she's such an exciting actress. I think it's public knowledge that she is co-starring in the Scarlett Johansson Black Widow spinoff. So she she was at the beginning of the screening in Brooklyn and then you know, gave us a toast and said, enjoy the movie. And then she got on a plane to Budapest where she's filming with Scarlett Johansson. So, you know, it's just interesting always watching a young actor on such a meteoric trajectory. Um, and I think this year in particular will be the one that people look back on and are like, yeah, that was the year that Florence Pugh really um, put her mark uh, on sort of people's consciousness. So get brave and see Midsommar, even if you're scared. Uh, just and like, be on know, the Florence Pugh train early. I'm a total chicken. I'm trying to make myself better about horror. <laughs> I went to Hereditary for like the, the the day after it premiered at Sundance, and all these tweets were saying it's the scariest movie you'll ever you'll ever see. I survived. I was fine. This yeah. is less scary than Hereditary. I think it's more just atmospheric. Um, there's some gore. Um, there's like maybe one ju- kind of jump thing, but it's really more just like a, a, a mood piece. Um, you know, which I hope that doesn't turn people off. It, it's really interesting. But you no, know, it's not like. You know, I I would have a much harder time at something where it's just like you know a B movie about ghosts where things are jumping out all the time. Like that's much worse for me than than this is. Yeah, I, I do think it is super cool. I mean, I I love a twenty four. I, I love that it exists. I feel like they have an optimism about film that like not a lot of other people have, <laughs> yeah. and they just are smart about saying you know. Hey, what do people actually go see in the movies? Like at a movie theater anymore? Not that many things. One of them is horror. That's the cheapest thing to do. Why don't we get like the coolest, smartest, most ambitious people that we can find to do stuff? You know, and and like we, they're actually making money off of that. But it is interesting to see as as these auteurs are like, well, let me edge away from you know jump scares into something weirder. Like that that strategy may you know it may lead to the next Kubrick or it may lead to the next you know uh, Heaven's Gate or whatever. <laughs> well, right, exactly. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the thing is like I think about Midsummer that's interesting and le- I mean to some degree with the Lighthouse, but like this is one step away from just him not making horror, you know, a, right. a horror movie, you know? Yeah. And so it's interesting watching that shift while he's still clearly obsessed with, like, some super creepy imagery uh, and, and a certain degree of violence. But I think there's, not that they're, you know, not that horror is shallow, but I think there's, like, more on his mind, and I'm curious to see yeah. what, what that is. Uh, well, Mike, do you want to talk about something else that's uh, scaring the hell out of the people to the point that I have not yet watched Chernobyl because I don't know if I can handle it? <laughs> yeah, uh, and Brett, can we get, like, a Geiger monitor clicking over this <laughs> next uh, part? Um, yeah, no, we were talking about uh, Chernobyl, and Joanna and I at least have have watched it, and um, I think that Jared Harris, you know, is is absolutely a, a late entry into um, into the Emmy race, right? He's so good in everything. Um, he's really good at smoking cigarettes. I don't know if you've noticed this, and sort of being like kind of worryingly ill. But uh, but this this show, it's weird. I, I was noticing that like civilians as we sometimes call them on this program uh on facebook and stuff were like holy shit chernobyl's amazing i was like wait regular people i know who don't watch anything we talk about are all watching this weird show about like you know nuclear fallout and yes they were and it works on a lot of levels including kind of body horror (laughs) uh including you know as a kind of 
warning about what happens to your society when people stop um, telling the truth uh, or managing things, you know, competently about a lot of stuff and and also about about kind of real life heroism. It's really, really good. I thought that the last um, episode was not as good as the rest of it, you know, and that kind of happens with these things. Like, how do you tie up a story like that? But anyway, the standout of it is, is Jared Harris, to me, seems incredibly in the mix for the Emmys and uh, and and maybe we'll win something. But Joanna, what was your take? Yeah, absolutely. And I think Jared Harris has so much goodwill built up from like his great work on Mad Men, on uh, The Crown, uh, The Terror, which is something that like not a lot of people have watched, or I'm sure a lot of people have watched, but not a consensus have watched on AMC, and he's fantastic in that. There is something about the way that Jared Harris looks. Like, he's such a compelling... I, I hope I can say this without sounding at all insulting because I'm such a huge fan of his, but he also like, he has, you know, funky teeth and funky skin. And there's just something about the way that he looks like a real person yeah. in this, uh, you know, Soviet nightmare that is just, you know, so watchable and so compelling. And I am <laughs> like, I watched it all the way through. Like I watched it after the fact, cause I was in a K hole created by game of Thrones. And I was like, okay, I got to catch up on Chernobyl cause everyone's talking about it. And I watched it. I kept waiting for like the thing that would make it popular. And I don't know that I, <laughs> I, I still don't understand why it was so popular, but it's ex- incredibly good at the same time. If that makes sense. Is so, it a like, true crime thing? Do you think like the, like people, People like, you know, watching real horror unfold. I have a theory. I think people right now are enjoying watching Russia fuck up. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's probably true. So you think you're so hot right now because you hacked our election and have a puppet president in the White House. But remember 30 years (laughs) ago. (laughs) Yeah. And and that's definitely a big part of it. Absolutely. And, and, and And the critique of the uh, Soviet approach to misinformation and how, you know, and it's sort of like maybe Americans can see it as like a, well, it's a, it's a co-pro, right? It's, it was originally like a British production, but like maybe um, the UK and the US can be like, see Russia, if you keep letting your government run roughshod on you, Chernobyl, like finger wagging, finger wagging or something like that, I guess. But like, I don't know. It's it's fascinating. Like, but isn't there also an element where it's like, okay, America, we're in a country where maybe the government isn't telling the truth all the time. Where's Absolutely. your Chernobyl? Like, that's the part that I that makes me feel like I don't know if I can handle diving into it. Well, the wildest thing about the first episode, I don't think it's a spoiler because it's the first episode. This is not an original thought. Someone else said this. I'm cribbing. I don't remember who. But you're expecting it to be like, oh my god, the horror is going to be this this event, this meltdown. That you know, and and instead the horror. That's all happening in the background. The horror is that no one will acknowledge that it happened for, you know, 12 sort of critical hours. Everybody's just like, it's not possible. That couldn't have happened. And and oh, and this yeah. horrible scientist in the lab basically just keeps sending more people to do things that are definitely going to kill them to prove that he's right, that the nuclear you know reactor didn't melt down because it couldn't possibly melt down because he would never have allowed it to melt down. And it's just like, it's, it's insane, but it's disturbingly familiar, I think, for a 2019 American. You know, yeah. that's what's crazy about that. And watching, I've seen, I've seen the first couple episodes and watching that guy, that actor, I don't forget his name, is, is amazing because you're just like, he's such an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, that's people who are denying climate change right now. You know, like, I think that, I think that there is a lot yes. of pertinence 
to just current anxieties in a way that I, I watched the first two episodes of this HBO show that's already aired in the UK called Years and Years, which is from oh, Russell yes. T. Davies. I'm and, obsessed with it. I mean, so I, it's interesting, <laughs> but it's also like it's watching people act out tweets. I'm like, this is like too on the nose. It's too pertinent to right now. It's stressful to watch. Whereas Chernobyl has at least that 30 year remove where it reminds us of things that are happening right now, but it's not the things that are happening right now. And I think that that kind of delicate balance is what I can come up with as a theory for why this dark, literally darkly filmed thing with British accents and not a lot of, t- not of like big name actors has done so well in the US, you know? Yeah, yeah. We should also mention Stellan Skarsgård, incredible, as uh, Joanna knows how to pronounce the name. Boy, Sh- Shavina, yeah. <laughs> and em- Emily Watson is playing this like uh, composite of like all these other scientists who work on it. And that's like, that's actually one of the more annoying reactions that I've seen to Chernobyl because like, uh, and I'm sorry, I'm trying to say Chernobyl the way that they say it in the thing. You don't hit that R. But, uh, and, and and shout out to Paul Ritter, who's who's the actor who plays the mustachioed scientist who we all like hate so much for uh, for this whole thing. But like, um, one of the more annoying reactions I've seen is like, one of the, one, okay, one of the pleasures of watching something like Chernobyl is, is digging into the truth stories and we at VF do a lot of really fun and great coverage around that it's like okay what's the real story behind this thing you're watching that's based on reality because obviously like Craig Mazin, who who put this together, like, is going to take some liberties in order to tell you a compelling narrative, right? He drew from real stories uh, surrounding the event, but also just knitted it together in a way that, like, people are connected maybe in a way that they wouldn't have been or something like that. Or you have someone like Emily Watson, who plays a composite of a bunch of different scientists, so that you actually have, like, a place for a third female lead in this, like, Soviet Russia sort of uh, landscape. But the... The fact-checking that is about... There's a lot of headlines I saw that were like, Chernobyl lied to you, like the TV show lied to you, and here's how. And then I would read through, and I'd be like, oh, so they composited some characters? Like, I don't feel lied to at all by that. You know, like, there's nothing... There's actually nothing gotcha about this production, and I feel like that's something... You're not watching a documentary. You're watching a miniseries. It is worth looking after you've watched it. Don't do what I did and watch it while you're watching the final um, uh, episode. But do read the Masha Gessen piece in The New Yorker because I think she raises some interesting concerns about it. Basically, basically just like along the lines of this whole situation was actually far worse than even this show presents it to be. And there are some moments of sort of American style heroism that she's just like, not only didn't it happen, it no one involved in this would have even ever thought to behave in anything like that. And that's how dark the totalitarian mm-hmm. world of, of Soviet Union was. And I think that's that's, you know, something when once you've enjoyed the series, that's interesting stuff to kind of reflect on. But I don't think it takes away from the, the show yeah. being good. I think that's I think that's absolutely fine to say like okay this is this isn't quite true this is this is why it's like through an American lens sort of thing um, but not that anything that the series is presenting is disingenuous I guess a uh, shout out to a couple other performances that I really want to say uh, notice which is uh, Barry Keown and Ferris Ferris are in this sort of like it's almost a standalone episode about these Soviet uh, soldiers who had to go around and and basically exterminate the the animals who were left behind who were sort of 
who were contaminated and had to be dispatched. And so it's just like this awful vignette of these soldiers having to kill like dogs, basically. Uh, watch Chernobyl. It's fun. Yeah, we um, fast forwarded then, through that in my house. <laughs> and then also uh, Jesse Buckley, who plays the, the wife of this firefighter. And Jesse Buckley is also like Florence Pugh, like an actress who's having an incredible year. I saw her in this uh, film at South by Wild Rose, which she's incredible in. And then she did like a live, because she's a beautiful singing voice. She did this like live musical uh, performance at South by. And I think she's just someone that people are really, really watching. Um, and I'm excited for her. I think she's going to be in the new James Bond film. And I'm excited for her to like really, really pop uh, in a huge way. So, okay, let's <laughs> somehow transition from Chernobyl to Toy Story 4, which is the last yeah. thing uh, that's, uh, that's out this week that we wanted to talk about. Uh, Richard and Joanna, you guys have both seen it. Uh, I understand from Twitter that there's a character named Forky in it. You tell me more about Forky. So Forky was a spork that was n- near the nuclear reactor in Chernobyl <laughs> and was irradiated into life. It's a weird backstory that they do in this movie. Pixar went really dark this time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Forky is, I think, exists primarily because it's the fourth movie uh, and he's Forky. Um, what? No. Yeah. Oh. Um, but, um, but he's this great weird character who... Those who've seen Toy Story 3 remember that at the end of that movie, the toys are left by, you know, sort of grown-up-ish Andy, given to a little girl named Bonnie, and they become her beloved toys. And uh, she goes to kindergarten and creates a toy out of pipe cleaner and a spork and some clay. It comes alive. And uh, Forky, who's voiced by Tony Hale, has this amazing kind of Frankensteinian awakening where he's like, what am I basically? And he insists that he's trash. He's not a toy. And it's really weird and funny. But the way that they work him into the story, uh, which is really more about Woody and and Bo Peep and and more familiar characters, uh, is really good. I was very skeptical. I was like, this seems like they had a perfect ending on the third one. Now they're trying to cash out with this new character in this fourth movie that doesn't need to exist. And I thought it was great. I was really surprised. I don't know how you feel about it, Joanna, but I'm, I'm always a little bit less sanguine on Pixar and animated films in general than some other people seem to be, but this one got me. Yeah, no, I um I loved it and it, it's a really interesting narrative for what's going on at Pixar right now. Um so, you know, John Lasseter was supposed to direct this, uh, the now disgraced uh, chief of Pixar. And so a, a lot of questions around Pixar are like, can Pixar survive in a post-John Lasseter world? Or like, what is an, what what is the point of doing Toy Story if John Lasseter is not doing it, uh, is how I imagine, I don't know, the worst Pixar fan uh, to think. But Josh Cooley does an incredible job taking over directorial duties on this. Um, and I think that... Um, I think Toy Story 3 is a, is an incredible film. Um, I think this one is also just like another really, really great emotional Pixar installment. And what's been interesting also is that there's been a lot of critique of, oh, Toy Story, uh, Pixar had so many sequels coming out. Like they're just, uh, you know, relying on the old hits. And that's true. Like Toy Story 4, uh, Finding Dory, et cetera, et cetera. But... Um, what they have coming up and going forward are all these originals. And so it just seems like a strong forward momentum for a new era of Pixar to have this, you know, uh, yes, we're doing another Toy Story, but it is not just a retread. We have something actually interesting to say. The the standout of the film is this, like, weird <laughs> um, spork figure. Uh, and and then we're just going to go forward with that energy. And I think I think it's a real, real, real triumph for them, um, especially after last year, the Incredibles 
to sort of feeling like exactly that, like a retread we didn't really need and it didn't win the Oscar, even though like earlier in the year, a lot of people thought it might and stuff like that. And this feels like a good rebound uh, for Pixar. Forky's uh, tendency to just, I told Katie this, I think after I came back from like a Pixar event months ago, that Forky just like calling himself trash and flinging himself into the trash over and over again is such a 2019 mood. I can't even just oh. like, it's just a beautiful representation. It's so dark because it's like almost <laughs> suicidal and it keeps yeah. happening in the movie and you're like, wow. And I think in a broader <laughs> sense, like I think that, you know, to, if they were going to do this tack on this fourth thing where it really had felt like a trilogy and then, you know, like, oh, no, just kidding. There's another one, which, you know, they just did with Men in Black. Um, and that certainly didn't work, although this has the same characters. But is they expand the kind of themes of the, of the Toy Story universe, which have always been about, you know, mortality to some extent, but really, you know, about watching kids grow up and the sort of wistful, you know, melancholy of that. And this kind of looks a little bit past what sort of being in a child's life might be and what kind of things you might want to do as an individual, whether you've had kids and they've grown up or whether you never had kids. And I really appreciate it in a sense, you know, the writers of the film extending a sort of hand of, of understanding and comfort in some ways to, you know, grownups in the audience who haven't always been able to fully relate to the exact sort of child rearing aspect of of the Toy Story metaphor. And I think that that's a good, you know, roadmap for if you want to stay in the same world and develop a property that, you know, has already had so many films um, come before it, uh, you need to sort of figure out what else this world can tell you about being alive. And I think that they figured that out really well in a way that, you know, The Incredibles 2 didn't really. It was, like you said, Joanna, a rehash. So uh, let that be a lesson to anyone considering uh, a fourth movie in a franchise or a fifth movie. Like, it needs to say something more but also still speak in the same vernacular as the past films. And I think, you know, Men in Black International, for example, does exactly not that. And um, right. here's and that's why Toy Story is going to make, you know, $40 billion or whatever it's going to make. Yeah, and while we were recording this, uh, Pixar just announced that they are um, releasing another new original next year, next June, called Soul, which will take you on a journey from the streets of New York City to the cosmic realms. Discover the answers to life's most important questions. So it could be literally anything. <laughs> Pixar gets infinitely exit like it's like Inside <laughs> Out, Toy Story Four. It's like all existentialism or nothing. Um, but yeah, so it's it's that, and um, and they're doing the the film onward. They're doing two originals next year. So they're just like getting really ambitious, which did not work out well for them at a couple years ago when they did like the good dinosaur the same year or something else. So um, we'll see. We'll see. But but this but I am sort of optimistic about this. Can I talk about one more thing before we go? Yeah. Yeah. Also up uh, under embargo is the uh, 2019 TCA Award nominations um, just came out under embargo as we were recording. And the narrative from those nominations, this is the Television Critics Association, uh, of which I am a proud member. Uh, the the narrative, I think, is there's HBO leads the nominations overall. But Pose and Russian Doll are the two series and Fleabag are the three series that garnered sort of the most nominations each. And so that's, you know, a win for FX, a win for Netflix and a, and a win for Amazon. Um, but what you see is that the most anything is nominated uh, is four 
and otherwise you have a huge spread and that's just like i mean that's just expected right that's just the um the narrative of 2019 is there's too much tv and it's all good so here's one nomination a piece for like so <laughs> many so many things so you feel like this is a, a preview of emmy nominations to come maybe i mean i can't you know it's hard it's hard to imagine emmy nominations coming out and us not like what what do we think is going to get an avalanche of awards. I mean, I guess other than Game of Game Thrones. Of Game of Thrones. Yeah. Veep. Game of Thrones got one TCA nomination for like a b- most outstanding program, but like they they didn't get anything else. And that's okay cuz they don't do like directing and 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 that sort of stuff. But like but That's a very interesting question too is 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 there a divide between critics who say, "Okay, this Game of Thrones season was not their best." Um right. versus Emmy voters who presumably will say, all right, we got to like pile the last, you know, 47 awards on the wagon before it leaves town. Um, we, we assume they're going to do that. It's possible that Emmy voters were like not that thrilled with the final season, but that would be shocking. I think the, right? I think it's a very different voting body. I think yeah. they're going to yeah, let absolutely. that show Pied Piper all the Emmys <laughs> into a cave or whatever. They're like, um, but you know, I, but that's why it's fun that there are critics awards like the TCAs, were because you can see another side of things, you know. Yeah. And I would love it if a show like Pose, which just got renewed for a third season, like made a huge splash at the Emmy. And I don't know that it will, but it'd be nice um, if Fleabag won forty-seven Emmys. Well, because it certainly ha- it certainly has that kind of support. I was I was um. Uh, in Provincetown at the Provincetown Film Festival uh, last weekend, which was a great time, great festival, uh, talking to some people at tea. They do a little tea dance at 4 p.m. And I said to a group of, I don't know, maybe seven people that I hadn't seen Fleabag Season 2, and everyone's head whipped around, and they were like, what? You have to go watch it right now. It's a, I know it's a beautiful, sunny day, but go watch Fleabag. Like, that show has support, so yeah. it would be fun if the Emmys reflected that. Let me let me note one more thing about the TCA nominations. They don't do gendered acting categories, right? So there's individual achievement in drama and individual achievement in comedy, and those are the two like acting categories. So, um, and there's only two men nominated uh, overall. Uh, and I should say that the TCA in general, I think, is a like tends towards female membership. Um, Billy Porter for Pose and Bill Hader for Barry. That's it. So. Uh, of, of all acting or just uh, comedy? All acting. Jeez. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, so you got like Jodie Comer and Michelle Williams and Pamela Adlon and Julie Lou Dreyfus and Natasha Leon and Catherine O'Hara and Phoebe Waller Bridge and Amy Adams and Patricia Arquette and Christine Baranski and who could argue with those? So, it's true. You know. <laughs> who are you going to kick out of that group? <laughs> exactly. So there you go. And now, as promised, we're going to share the interview that Laura Bradley did with Marissa Tomei, who played Edith Bunker in the live revival of All in the Family um, alongside Woody Harrelson as Archie Bunker. Uh, It was a pretty special event, and she uh, really did a lot of work to kind of connect to this character, who was such a a linchpin of a really, really important sitcom, um, and kind of talked about the ways that maybe All in the Family you'd think wouldn't have aged as well and how they managed to, uh, to bring it to life anyway. It's a it's a really fascinating conversation, so let's listen to it. I'm here with Marissa Tomei to talk about the revival, the live revival of Norman Lear's All in the Family and the Jeffersons. Marissa starred in the All in the Family revival as Edith Bunker, originally played by Gene Stapleton. The first thing I'm wondering is just, was Gene Stapleton an influential figure for you growing up or in your early days as a performer? You just captured her energy as Edith so well. Uh, well... Who doesn't love Jean Stapleton? I mean, the, she's so deeply, deeply 
beloved. And when I was little watching All in the Family, I didn't really relate to Edith. I was looking at Gloria and I was looking at her hair and I was <laughs> looking at her shoes and who was coming to the door. And I wasn't as aware of the fabric of the family dynamics as much as the events and, oh, they were going to do a flashback to when Mike and Gloria <laughs> got married. So I was looking at different things. But uh, yes, she's someone who is an incredible performer in many, you know, a theater actress as well and in many mediums has done incredible work. So once I revisited this and, and we started talking about Edith, I was all over again, blown away by all her choices and how she constructed this along with the writers. She was such a crucial part in the show, just sort of as its heart and soul in a way. I'm wondering, how do you prepare to take on that role and to become Jean Stapleton and by extension, Edith? Well, I had a little talk with Jean from <laughs> above, and then I, I didn't really want to um, look at her or kind of commune with her until I felt solid that I understood Edith, even though she's the conduit for Edith and she created Edith along with the writers. It's in a, in a show that long, we know that they're doing that hand in hand. So, well, first I asked, what, what's the mandate? You mm -hmm. know, what are we doing here? Is this an homage? Is it more of an SNL impersonation <laughs> kind of situation? Right. Uh, what, what's the end game too? Are we, because... I thought it was just a one-night-only thing. Then at one point it seemed like maybe there was going to be, are we uh, angling to re revive the whole show? I wasn't <laughs> really sure. There were a lot of rumors going around. Mm -hmm. So I spoke to Brandt, who's Norman's Lear's producer, and um, asked him. And really he came back saying Norman says the actors should really, as if they got this script in, and, and it hadn't ever been cast before. Mm -hmm. What would you do with it? I found that really daunting. <laughs> it was not exactly yeah. what I wanted to hear. <laughs> I imagine that would be intimidating to yeah. sort of taking on a role yeah. and being told, no, just treat it like a new script when somebody else did this role for, like you said, so long. Uh, how yeah. do you think through doing that, but then also keeping it in at least the spirit that she did Of course, it in. because we love that spirit. Right. And that's why we want to see it again. We want to be with those characters as they were created and also listen to them anew in this time. So that was exactly the question. How, how do we do that? And I think each of us as performers answered that for ourselves differently because Norman... After he left us with that, there wasn't anything else to there because Jimmy Burroughs came on the week that we we only had a, we rehearsed for five days, and he was there for that week, but he wasn't available before, and I started before because I was so freaked out that I had committed to this <laughs> project, and as you we were talking earlier, how how much we love this show and how much it meant to us growing up and what. A national treasure, Norman Lear is, and all of those things that are that are 
fill our hearts with so much love that that was why I had to say yes, even though I thought as soon as I said yes, I thought, what have I done? <laughs> but diving back into it, uh, I reached out to Woody Harrelson to ask him, "Are you? let's figure this out together because, right. you know, that's kind of what we're doing here. So I, I asked Woody and uh, he said, hey, I'm working on the accent. We did this via text. Mm-hmm. And then we didn't, that was really it. So I didn't really know if he was going to go full Archie, what he was going to do with his hair or his right. body. And those were questions that I ultimately had to answer mm-hmm. for myself with the incredible team that they had assembled. So one thing that I asked for early on was a singing coach <laughs> and, and, and a wig. So I thought I just need to have those in a contract so that I know <laughs> that I have that, that those will be there. And um, solid requests. <laughs> so that created what Norman wanted, which was go back to it and what would the history of these characters really be? And he had put them in, put it in there. So that was some of the beginning, mm-hmm. the beginning of it. But then you have to go back to Edith herself and what, what Jean was doing because mm-hmm. we want Jean too. We want, <laughs> we want an essence of Jean. It has to be. That's what we love. And the lines, the intonation, which I tried not to do exactly, but mm-hmm. just to get the, get the spirit of what was behind it. And basically her spirit, which was such a beautiful, beautiful place to be, is that she is non-judgmental. She mm-hmm. doesn't lie. And her, her credo is everybody is somebody when you love them. Mm-hmm. So I just put myself into this stream of love that Jean created via Edith and tried to see everything, everything through her eyes because it's hard to think about what Archie says to her sometimes. Right. Yeah, for, now, uh, as very women, harsh women and her. men looking at it now, it's like, oh, how's this going to fly? <laughs> that is actually a thing I was wondering is just to me from the outside, the hardest thing about this role and cap would be capturing Edith's dignity. Archie was Mm. always, like we said, so harsh with her. But the cleverness of the writing was that she would always drop these great kind of innocent zingers (laughs) that gave her a power of her own. I'm wondering whether that was a concern for you, sort of making sure that she didn't come across as a doormat and sort of bringing that strength that she had out. Yeah. Yes, but not... It was a concern, but nothing I could do... uh, consciously to, mm-hmm. oh, I'm going to change this so that it reads stronger. And mm-hmm. of course, we weren't going to change the lines. No. So, but I think that what I was just talking about, about exactly. her, the power of that, that, the enormous heart that she has is the strength. Mm-hmm. So once that's aligned, it just naturally has its own power. Mm-hmm. When you were asking me about how did I relate to Edith, I actually... It, it, it took quite a few beats, and then I thought, oh, my, Gracie Allen. Mm-hmm. Gracie because I could relate more to Gracie Allen initially because um, probably because of her, uh, maybe her glamour or the relationship <laughs> that that she had, has with her husband was different. Yes. Um, so it was kind of a way in that I realized, oh, there's a, there's a lot, this, Edith is in a long line of, hilarious dingbats <laughs> that's but that have yeah. also certain brilliance to them how do you work to build 
rapport with Woody Harrelson so quickly. It was striking how transportive it was immediately to watch you two singing behind the piano. And that seems to me like something that would be very difficult to achieve with five days to prepare. We, you know, that that was one of the first questions I asked. Are we doing the song? <laughs> um, half hoping and half fearing. Right. And um, it was built into the schedule. And then maybe by day two or three, Jimmy Burroughs thought, no, let's do the song live as well. That just sent the next level no of pressure, chills, <laughs> adrenaline through my body. I, I had had a really bad experience in high school where I was supposed to sing a song from Pippin and I got laryngitis. So I always have felt like I can't sing in public, <laughs> to that, to, not to that level, even though the song is... You, you have so much leeway, obviously. Gene right. was a, a, a really great singer, which was another really interesting thing because in the it, when you see the shows, she talks about Kay Kaiser and Deanna Durbin. Mm -hmm. And when you look at those performers, oh, that's the vein of this kind of singing she's trying to emulate. So right. I could really get to the root of what that was and the joy of how, how she aspired to to be them in her in her little <laughs> in her own little girl fantasies and uh so over the course of the next three days jimmy burroughs would say i'm just gonna ask you every day and we can just practice every day <laughs> and hopefully when it's time to do it you'll do it live <laughs> and, and and woody was very encouraging what well, he he has a really good voice and we did it the night before mm -hmm. with an audience so that we could so on Tuesday night, we did it taped in case anything should happen to the live show. They'd have something to put up. Right. And it also gave us a chance to practice with an audience. So that day I felt safe because it was taped to do it. Mm -hmm. And that really broke the ice for me. And I thought, okay, well, take, just take another risk. It's, it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> Were there any aspects of doing this live on that night that you just hadn't expected? Was there anything just different about it from what you had thought it would be? Well, it was different from the taped show for sure because I think the audience was also very heightened. Their adrenaline was in it with us mm -hmm. on the Wednesday night, so the laughs were kind of heartier or more prolonged or or more, uh, there was more surprise right. and delight and, and then just the sheer joy of everyone revisiting this beloved show together. There was a lot of emotion. I would love to do this every week. I mean, <laughs> it was just, it was so exciting and so terrifying and such an incredible format because you're, it's like, it's like a play, but it's short. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, but everyone gets to see it. <laughs> and, uh, and there's no, you've done it. Mm -hmm. So it's not a, in terms of like actual work hours and stuff. Right. It's really <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. I feel like I would kick myself if I didn't ask just what was it like working on this with Norman Lear? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, he is the fountain of depth and humor and vision that that we know him to be. And he's he's very easygoing with it. Uh, but he came to every day there would whether there was a run through or just a short rehearsal he was there to see at least the run through give feedback 
whether he, he didn't give it really directly to us, he would give it through Jimmy, um, but his eyes were on it. And the, the grace that he carried, because he, it, it was, it's intimidating, and he just was there to, to keep an eye on, on these beloved characters, the pacing, mm-hmm. and you know, how it was all coming together. But also he was a great support. He, he believed, he believed in, in us. And so there wasn't a, there wasn't a tense atmosphere at all. It was very welcoming. He called me. That's how I got involved. Actually. He mm-hmm. called me on, I don't know how he got my cell number. I, <laughs> He's Norman Lear. He has yeah, ways. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. He said, Marissa, remember we met 30 years ago. I told you I'd call you 30 years ago. <laughs> I'm calling you now. <laughs> uh, did you remember this? Oh yeah, I did. Yeah, he, he actually guess, it was. That's yeah. what was amazing about it. That was an actual yeah. encounter we had had, and what, that he said he'd call. <laughs> when Norman when Norman Lear says he he's going to call it. you, I imagine that is a thing that you remember forever until I, you get the call. I kind of feel like I was discovered by him <laughs> through this, in a way. Yeah. <laughs> and what's it been like just to see the responses to it? There was so much. I mean, joy. Mm. And yeah. particularly, I think, for your performance and the way that you captured that character. The joy, we all felt that joy throughout the whole... As soon as I stepped on the set, I cried. I, I, I'm sure every one of those performers did as well. It just... You can't believe... It's also so trippy. Like, you think you're going through the TV into right. this fantasy that... You, like, who in their wildest dreams would think, I'm... I'm going to be part of All in the Family and and stand on that set and and say any of those lines. It's just was it's just one of life's surprises. I, I was I was <laughs> I was feeling like ah, eh, what's what's going on? What's what is there? <laughs> and then life just kind of brought this incredible surprise in, and so there there was that joy and also the conversation around how how topical. Mm-hmm. the the episodes are and all the right how solid the writing is how the writing more than holds up is just is so so robust borderline eerie yeah. borderline times. eerie can can be sad if you think about it a lot right um, but that the country had lived through you know 1968 at that mm-hmm. time and the, the, and those that family was processing all those changes and just like we're processing so many changes in the country now and over the years, and even recently, you have taken on just such a wide variety of roles in the sense of you've been in the sitcom revival, you were uh, in Avengers Endgame, a very big franchise film, and obviously uh, the Spider-Man universe, you had a cameo in Handmaid's Tale relatively recently last season. And it just strikes me how, again, varied these roles are. I'm wondering, what kinds of parts are you seeking out right now? Is there a characteristic that you look for? Part of it's what comes along and uh, mm-hmm. and then of course who else is involved and I'm excited that this is a bit of a comedy cycle so you know it's wonderful when it has relevance to either to my personal world or to to the world at large which obviously all in the family was something that was was part of it so like relating almost thematically in a certain way is is always something I actually look for or just that it resonates that mm-hmm. way 
And I do have one question about Avengers Endgame. I was reading that the cast for the funeral scene toward the end had been told that it was a wedding that they were filming. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering, were you told that? Did you go in that day expecting to shoot a wedding? Yes, we we were told that it was a wedding. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, you know, when the costume designer is putting you in black. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, am I not happy about this wedding? (laughs) So did you, you had sort of picked up that something might be, might be a miss. It was in the ethers. (laughs) Uh, I think we're about ready to sign off, but uh, is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you'd like to talk about? Oh, uh, well, when you had asked me earlier about Jean and Edith, one of the most wonderful discoveries was to see the depth and breadth of her craft because we were looking at, for example, the costumes and... She wore a lot of, she wore green and she wore like a lavender color. And sometimes she wore coral. But of course, it's like, that's what maybe suited Jean and maybe suited her skin tone. And maybe that was just what was around at that time. But then when I got to look at the costumes with Carrie, our costume designer, we tried on a bunch of things, things that I thought, well, maybe this would be a better color for me, or maybe this would be more comedic. Or maybe, No, Jean had figured it out that the blues and the greens looked perfect with that kind of pa- and that kind of pattern on that set. So it was this full cycle of understanding, oh, that that a lot of thought went into this and this choice and this choice. Mm-hmm. And after going through that long process of understanding Edith the character and some of Jean's choices on that final day is when I went back to Jean, because I said, I'm going to not talk to you for a while (laughs) um, and not think about you. And that's when I lit a candle to her and had a conversation with her. I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional and thanked her. uh, Because I really understood that um, not only what she did as as a thespian, but also where her heart was. Because a lot of her is in that. Mm-hmm. I mean, your connection is so evident and it really came through. Uh, so thank you again so much and for taking thanks, the time Jean. to speak with me. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thanks as always for listening and for finding us and telling other people about us and leaving us reviews. You can find us all at VanityFair.com and we're all at Little Gold Men on Twitter and we're on our own. I'm at Katie Rich, Mike. Mike underscore Hogan. And Richard. At Happy Birthday, Katie. Hey! Thank you. Happy Yay. birthday. I, you, I can't believe you changed your Twitter handle to that, Richard. That was uh, <laughs> yeah, a real level of commitment. I lost my blue commitment. check mark. It's a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth it. Uh, and Joanna. Joe wrote this. Uh, this episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best description of the NBA Finals goes to Mike Hogan. There are some really nice baskets. 